Would you continue with me in prayer? Father, in these next few moments, we just pray only Christ would be exalted. We've sung and prayed in our worship that he would be the center. Many times he's pressed out to the sides. We pray now that we might see him in your word in such a way that he is brought back in and lifted up high and that we might know how to honor him with every square inch of our lives. And so we do ask this in his name. Amen. As Daniel already mentioned, we're in the latter parts of a survey of all of the Bible, trying to get a sense for what God's doing. And we've said that the Bible can be remembered or thought about as a drama that unfolds in six acts. Believe it or not, we are all the way to Act 5. The good news of the kingdom is being spread. This is the focus and the act that consumes a large portion of the New Testament But significantly, this is the act that we live in. We live in Act 5. Now, Act 5 starts to unfold in the book of Acts, as we saw just a couple of weeks ago. One of the key players in Acts is a man named Paul who went on a series of journeys to accomplish this mission of spreading the good news. He went on three separate missionary journeys, all in the regions that you can see on the screen there. What he did to spread the gospel was to plant churches. He didn't just plant those churches, but if you watch how those lines work from missionary journey to missionary journey, he went back to visit many of the same churches to strengthen them because healthy churches are the key to the spread of the gospel and the fulfillment of God's mission. That's why the key word for this act is the church. We are the means that God is using in this day to accomplish his mission. And as we look through this morning, three of these letters that Paul wrote, um, actually wrote them, not during these three journeys, but at the end when he was taken captive all the way up to Rome where he was imprisoned, he wrote these three letters this morning Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, likely from that prison. So while he is suffering in prison, he's writing letters to strengthen the church. And what you'll find that's central to each of these letters is the presentation of Christ and how we should live in light of it. That Christ, understanding Christ, remembering Christ, worshiping Christ is the key to the healthy church and the progress of the gospel. So this morning, we want to look at these three books, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. You know, when you are trying to find your way through the Bible, you've got, in in the New Testament, you've got the Gospels, and then Acts, and then we've already looked at Romans and Corinthians and Galatians. And you get into these smaller books, they all tend to run together, you can never find them when you're trying to find them in your Bible. Here's the way I remember the order of these little books. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Now, go eat popcorn. That, that's the order they're in. G-E-P-C, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Hopefully that's not the most spiritual thing you remember today from this time, but hopefully it'll help you at least find these books in the Bible. So let's look at them. Ephesians. 
First of all, um, Ephesians, the first chapter of Ephesians, the first 14 or so verses after you get out of the greeting, actually the next 11 verses, are one long tangled sentence in the language that Paul wrote in. Um, Your English teacher would have had fits with him. It's just one tangled up expression of worship for God. One long prayer. And he begins this way. He says, praise, or many of your Bibles say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ He says, we bless God because he has blessed us. Um, When we talk about blessing someone, there's an expression in our culture, you you bless out someone. That's not what this means. It means to speak well of someone. So when we gather for worship, we bless God. We speak well of him. And we do that because God has blessed us us with every spiritual blessing. He has held nothing in heaven back from us. All the glories of heaven God has given to the likes of us. And because we bless him, because of that, we bless him simply because he has so blessed us. And as this prayer unfolds, we see some of the ways that God has blessed us in Christ. Um, Verses 4 through 6, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. It's inescapable when you hear this. The language of choosing. God has chosen us to be his God is a God who chooses, and stunningly, he has chosen folks like us. This is the way God has always operated, way back in Deuteronomy, the beginning of the Old Testament. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. God is a God who chooses And while this raises lots of questions about, well, how does he choose? Who does he choose? How does he predestine? When did he do that? Um, The Bible's very clear. God is a God who chooses. And amazingly, he's chosen people like us. He has not chosen us because we are holy. He chose us to make us holy. He has not chosen us because we believe. He chose us so that we would believe. In love, he predestined us to be adopted into his family. This is one of the pictures of God's choosing. He chose us to be adopted. Many in our congregation have been involved in the process of adoption. It's a beautiful image that Paul uses to describe what happened to us spiritually, those of us who believe. 
And I love the story that um, author Lee Strobel tells about adoption that should remind us of our own. He says, shortly after the Korean War, a Korean woman had an affair with an American soldier and she got pregnant and he went back to the United States. She never saw him again. She gave birth to a little girl and this little girl looked different than the other Korean children. She had light-colored curly hair. And in that culture, children of mixed race were ostracized by the community. In fact, many women would kill their mixed-race children just because they didn't want them to face such rejection. But this woman didn't do that. She tried to raise her little girl as best she could, and for seven years she tried to do that until the rejection was too much. And then she did something that nobody in this room probably would ever consider, and that is she turned her little seven-year-old daughter out into the streets. She simply couldn't bear it anymore. The little girl was ruthlessly taunted by people. They called her one of the ugliest words in the Korean language, tuki. It means alien devil. It didn't take long for this little girl to draw conclusions about herself based on the way people treated her. For two years, she lived on the streets. They called her that name relentlessly. Until finally, she made her way to an orphanage, and one day, word came that an American couple was going to adopt a little boy. And all the children in the orphanage got excited because at least one little boy was going to have hope. He was going to have a family. And so... This little girl spent the day cleaning up the little boys, giving them baths and combing their hair and wondering which one would be adopted by the American couple. And the next day the couple come and this is what the little came and this is what the little girl recalled. She said, it was like Goliath had come back to life. She said, I saw the man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby. I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face, and I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. He saw me out of the corner of his eyes, and she says, let me tell you, I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me and he began rattling away something in English. And I looked up at him. And he took his huge hand and he laid it on my face. What was he saying? What was he saying? He was saying, I want this child. This child is the one for me. And that's what God has done for us. He has chosen to adopt us as his children. Inexplicably, apart from the love of God. God has chosen us. Wonder of wonders. If you believe in Christ... That's because God has chosen you. With a glad heart in love, he chose you. And so we worship him. We bless him because he has blessed us by choosing us. Paul goes on and he says, In him we have redemption through his blood. He's speaking of Christ. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. 
He has freely given us, even lavished on us, this thing called grace. Grace. That's where you get what you don't deserve and you don't get what you do deserve. That's grace. And it says, God has lavished that on us. Grace is where mercy triumphs over judgment, where you get redemption instead of slavery, where you get forgiveness instead of wrath. That's grace. God is a God who freely gives us, who lavishes on us grace. He lavishes it, it says. Um, it's, lavishing is like over the top. Lavishing is like live in the Biltmore, eat at the Second Empire, drive the rolls. That's lavish. God has lavished his grace on us. He has in mind here, Paul does, a particular lavishing act. It is the death of the Son of God. Through that act, grace, through that costly act, grace was lavished upon us at great cost, but for a great purpose. Paul says in verse 11, in him we were also chosen. There's that language again. We were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that, this is why we're chosen, we who are first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And then a couple lines later, he says the same phrase, to the praise of his glory. We were chosen for the praise of his glory. That's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our meaning. That we live for the praise of his glory at home, at work, at school. We live for the praise of his glory. We live to spread the praise of his glory. And this choosing love, this lavish adopting grace changes everything, Paul says. He says, it changes who you are. In the second chapter, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's not work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. He says we were spiritually dead. We followed the ways of the world, even the ways of Satan. We gratified our own sinful desires and we were objects of God's wrath. But then, by faith in the cross, in Christ and what he did on the cross and in his resurrection on our behalf, three great exchanges happened. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. So we're no longer dead to sin. Now we're alive with Christ. 
It says God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We no longer followed Satan. Now we are with Christ, seated with him. We have his authority and power and promise over sin and even over death. He said we're seated with him in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, we're no longer objects of wrath, but now he wants to show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is the polar opposite of wrath, that his incomparable riches might be expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The incomparable riches of God's grace. How rich is God? John Piper asked this question. He says, how rich is God? I read in the paper recently that Queen Elizabeth is worth about $4 billion. Now, if you got a letter in the mail from Queen Elizabeth which said she had taken an oath by the blood of her son to spend her riches to show you as much kindness as she could for the rest of your life, Wouldn't you get excited? And her wealth compares to God's, he says, like a grain of sand to the Sahara Desert. The incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He goes on and says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. The grace that has been lavished on us is through faith. Grace comes through faith. It doesn't come through good works. It doesn't come through being really, really good, dressing up really, really nice, and having your hair done on Sundays, and coming here. That's not how this grace comes to you. It comes through faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the only Son of God. Don't miss that. We do good works out of that grace, not to get that grace. But it is intended to change us, this grace, when we receive it. It's to change our identity. He says, this is what you were, this is what you are now. You've been changed. He says, now... You're united with Christ. You're in Christ. 35 times in Ephesians, he says that idea. You're with Christ now. You're united with him. You're in Christ. What we believe changes us. We have a new identity, a new relationship with God that changes us, changes our relationship to sin. It changes everything. If you read through the rest of the book, which we don't have time to do this morning, we see that this, this is what binds us together as a church. 
This is supposed to change our speech. It's supposed to affect our anger. It's supposed to make us forgiving and sacrificially loving. It makes us pure sexually. It marks our marriages with submission and sacrificial love. It makes us parent with patience and causes our children to obey. This grace changes everything. This morning, it's important just to pause and ask yourself a question. Do I know Christ like that? Do I know his grace in a way that has changed me, my identity, my life has been changed? And if you'd like to know Christ like that, at the end of our service today, we will take the Lord's Supper. And it's a beautiful time for you to say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And I trust that that is Christ, whose broken body on the cross the bread represents, and whose life's blood shed for sins the cup represents. I believe in Christ. I trust Christ. No better time than as we approach the Lord's table at the close of our service today. One writer says this about Ephesians. He says, Ephesians seeks to shape us by reminding us how wonderful God's work in Christ is, how significant our union with Christ is, and what living for Christ looks like. That's Ephesians. Now the second letter, Philippians presents a stunning portrait of Christ in three verses. In Philippians chapter 2. It says there in verses six, verse 6 through 8, <clears throat> Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The creator of the universe humbled himself, became one of us, and then died for our sins on a cross as a common criminal. Max Lucado reminds us of the intentionality of this action on Christ's part. That he came and lived and walked on this earth so he could die for our sins. He says the cross was no accident. What does that mean? It means Jesus planned his own sacrifice. It means Jesus intentionally planted the tree from which his cross would be carved. It means he willingly placed the iron ore in the heart of the earth from which the nails would be cast. It means he voluntarily placed Judas in the womb of a woman. It means Christ was the one who set in motion the political machinery that would send Pilate to Jerusalem. And it means he didn't have to do it. But he did. It was no accident. He says, would that it would have been. Even the cruelest of criminals is spared the agony of having the death sentence read to him before his life even begins. 
But Jesus, he says, was born crucified. Whenever he became conscious of who he was, he also became conscious of what he had to do. The cross-shaped shadow could always, always be seen. Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross for us. And just before this passage, I just read to you, the immediate preceding verses, Paul says these equally stunning words. He says, you do nothing, not one thing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than or more important than yourselves. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And this is a call to radical humility. There's absolutely no room for selfish pride. Not in the way we play sports or write checks or do business or conduct ourselves in the privacy of our living rooms or even our bedrooms. He says plainly we are to do nothing out of selfishness or vain conceit, never from the position of superiority. Instead, everybody in this room is more important than me. That's what it means to follow Christ. It's absolutely central to following Christ, putting others' interests above our own. And this, um, this is so central. I don't think I have ever given marriage counsel where I have not cited this passage. It is absolutely central to your marriages that this dominates the landscape of your homes. That the most important person in your home is not you. That's the way of Christ in a marriage. How do we do this? You know, we read about Christ and we think about Christ and we pray to be like Christ and we imitate Christ. We follow Christ. Paul says if we draw near to the cross and the one who died there, we'll find freedom from our enslavement to selfishness. If we make it our daily focus, the target of our lives, to think about the attitude, the mind of Christ that took him to the cross, then we can consider others more important than ourselves, place their interests above our own, and we can live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Is that how you live in your house? Is that your reputation at your work? Is that the role you see yourself in here at this church? the humblest of servants? Friends, this is central to what it means to follow Christ. To find our joy in the service of another. Pediatrician David Sakira shares this story that helps us understand that. He says, one Sunday, my wife had prepared a lesson in Sunday school on being useful, and she taught the children that everyone can be useful. 
that usefulness is serving God and that doing so is worthy of honor. And all the kids soaked up what she was saying and when they were done, one little girl raised her hand and asked a question. She said, teacher, what can I do? I don't know how to do many useful things. And of course, the teacher had not scripted that question and was not prepared to give an answer. So she looked around the room and she saw an empty flower vase sitting in the window and she said, you can bring a flower and put it in that vase next week. The little girl was a little distressed by that. She said, that's not very important. And the teacher says, it is if you are helping someone. And so sure enough, the next Sunday, this little girl, her name was Sarah, she brought a dandelion to put in the vase. And so began her pattern. Every week, unprompted, unreminded, a dandelion. And this story found its way through the teacher and the parents back to the pastor. And the pastor thought, this is, this is outstanding. And so the little vase made its way from the Sunday school class window to the pulpit. And he sat it up next to the pulpit when he preached and explained the story to the congregation. On the honor of serving others, using Sarah's vase as an example. He said, David says uh, the congregation was touched by the message and the week started on a good note. But during that week, he got a phone call from Sarah's mother. She worried that Sarah seemed to have less energy than usual. She didn't have any appetite. So he offered her some reassurance, made room in his appointment book. He was their pediatrician. and Sarah was brought in to see him. And after a battery of tests, the shocking conclusion came to him that she had leukemia. And so on the way home, he stopped to see Sarah's parents. And he says he had the most difficult decision of his life, conversation of his life, as he explained to them that there was no cure. And that this disease would take Sarah's life. Well, time pressed on, he said. Sarah became confined to bed and to the visits that many people gave her. And she lost her smile. She lost most of her weight. He said another phone call came and it was Sarah's mother asking me to come see her and he said he dropped everything and ran to the house and there she was, a small bundle that barely moved. After a short examination, I knew that Sarah would soon be leaving this world and I urged her parents to spend as much time as possible with her. That was Friday afternoon. He says on Sunday morning, church started as usual, the singing, the sermon, it all went on just as usual. But at the end of the sermon, the pastor suddenly stopped speaking and his eyes wide. He stared at the back of the church with utter amazement and everybody turned to see what he was looking at and it was Sarah. Her parents had brought her for one last visit. She was bundled in a blanket, a dandelion in one hand. She didn't sit in the back row. Instead, she slowly made her way to the front of of the church where her vase was still perched by the pulpit and she put her flower in the vase and a little piece of paper beside it. And then she returned to her parents. And four days later, Sarah died. David writes that at the funeral service, unexpectedly, as everyone was walking back to their cars, the pastor pulled him aside. He said, Dave, I've got something you need to see. And he pulled out of his pocket the piece of paper that Sarah had left by the vase. Holding it out to me, he said, you better keep this. It may help you in your line of work. He says, I opened the folded paper to read in pink crayon what Sarah had written. Dear God, this vase has been the biggest honor of my life. Sarah. 
Is that how you think about your work? Is that how you think about your service to this church? Is that how you think about the attention your children cry out to you or your spouse asks of you? Is it the biggest honor of your life because you get to honor God by serving someone else? Friends, that's central to what it means to follow Christ. And that's what Philippians 2 so boldly calls us to. Now, our third letter, the Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, overlaps a lot with the letter to Ephesians. They both have outstanding teaching on marriage, on parenting, amongst other things. But it has an extraordinary portrait of the exalted, supreme nature of Christ in the first chapter. It was read to you earlier. It goes like this. Just listen to these words. This is your Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Christ did his great, supreme, exalted work so that you could be holy in God's sight without blemish and free from accusation. And Paul, throughout the rest of Colossians, describes what that should and should not look like as we live out what Christ bought for us on the cross. First, he says, Put off all these kinds of things. Since then, in chapter 3, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, because these things are true, put to death, therefore, 
Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death sexual immorality. Put to death impurity and lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. He says, put it to death. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Rid yourself of all anger, all rage, all malice, all slander, filthy language from your lips. Rid yourself of it. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the, creator, in the image of its creator. Put off, he says, all these things because you know Christ. Christ calls you to this and he enables this. Put these things off. And then he goes on and says, put these things on as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You are to forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. Full and free. Forgive. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. This morning, are you, as a follower of Christ, wearing things you ought not and lacking things you ought to wear? The book of Colossians says, this is our exalted Christ. This is what he has done for us. He has called us to and enabled us to live this way, not the old way, to put on these new virtues and to put off the old vices. Central to the health of the church is Christ. Seeing him, treasuring him above all things, honoring him with all we are and all we have. And so as we come to the Lord's table now, this is our chance to honor him. By this act of obedience whereby we remember his sacrifice for us, but also to come And dedicate our lives to him to say, Christ, I will put these things off. I will put these things on by your grace as he has spoken to you this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer as we approach the Lord's table? Father, receive now this act of worship which your son taught us that we were to come to this table as your children and remember the depth of his love for us. And so now, we come to the table and we remember.